road. A limousine would pull out in front. Two big guys would come and carry my luggage down to the car. They'd carry me down to the car if I wanted to. <laughs> Remember, would drive you. I'd drive me right. I live here in Sherman Oaks, and remember, we'd fly over to Van Nuys Airport, the private jets, and we'd go right out in the tarmac. I'd get out. They'd load my luggage. I'd walk on the plane. The moment Frank put his foot on that plane, we took up down the runway. Boom! He had a pilot. Wow. Any spots? He'd say, "Let's go, spots," and we'd <laughs> down the runway. And we squad cars and limousines. We'd land squad cars and limousines. Rush us to the arena. We'd go on stage, do the show. Squad cars and limousines rush us back to the jet. We were flying over the venue. People weren't even in their cars yet. We were on our way to the next city, doing five or six cities or seven in a row. This, doing that and playing golf. Christopher Morley once said, "Success is living the life you want." I was, I was on top of the world with that world. You know, I, I just that's what I miss. I miss that excitement. Dystopia tonight. You said, "What's going on?" You just mentioned all the things I did in my career, and now your show. So it's all downhill from here. <laughs> this is how we let people know it's over. We invite them on here, and then right at the end of the show, we go, "And you're done. You're out of show business. Congratulations." Pete, after this, what? What? <laughs> I love that we were talking about it backstage, but I do. You you have somewhere to go after this. You're you're the only guest we've had so far that is dressed this nicely on the show. Yeah, I wanted to you know compliment you and said that. I told you that your manager told me that I had to wear a suit and tie if I was going to go on your show, but that's not true. I actually had a, an interview this afternoon uh, on, on camera, and then also I'm leaving here and going to do a corporate date when I finish with your show. And then after that, I'm, I'm going to have dinner, and then I'm going to go catch Frankie Valley in Thousand Oaks. He's a buddy of mine, and, and of course, Beautiful. They're, they're performing at the Thousand Oaks Performing Arts Center tonight, and it, I've seen his show, and I've worked with him before, so it's, mm. it's a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun. When you go to see shows like that, are you good at kind of not getting the itch to want to perform? Like, are you, are you able to uh, to kind of detach yourself and go, I'm here to see a friend perform. It's not about me and I'm having a good time. Or do you see a stage and a large group of people and you're like, I got to I want to I want to I got to tell some jokes. I want to get on stage. You know, I have to be honest with you. <clears throat> that question has never been asked me in 50 years. And it's a very, very good question, because I've always said, believe this or not, I feel more comfortable on stage than I do sitting in an audience. Right. I, I, you know, when, when um, you know, the years I toured with Sinatra was 20,000 seat arenas and, and, uh, and, and Hawaii, 40,000. And, and just the excitement of that, you know, yeah. and yet I still feel more comfortable in the wings waiting to come out. Uh, when I sit in an audience after, after a while, I, I get, mm -hmm. a, you know, in most shows should never last more than 90 minutes, to be honest with you. I mean, that's right. all the big stars I ever toured with. That's the way they wanted it. You know, 90 minute show was more than enough for an audience. Yeah. If it was longer than that, then, then and I don't care who you are. They get a little bit restless. Yeah. You know, I just learned the craziest fact about, and I, it's, it's not something that I think I would have ever normally looked up. So I just stumbled upon it. The Beatles shows when they were touring, when they were big, when they did live gigs, they were 25 minutes. They did 25 minutes on stage and that was it. And I cannot believe that that was all you got 
when you went to see, you know, because McCartney now does like two, two and a half, two, two and a half hours. Springsteen's like four hour shows. Like comedians always do longer now, you know, longer sets. But when you went to see a band like that back in the day, it was it was 25. Like 90 seems fair. 90 seems like a perfect amount of time for an evening. But 25 minutes, biggest band in the world. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm really surprised because you just told me something, another thing I didn't know. That that oh. minutes, I would have, you know, they didn't do a whole lot of that. Now, prior to becoming big stars, mm-hmm. they performed in clubs in, in Germany and in England. They must have done uh, our shows there. But yeah. I, I would I would think 25 minutes for, you know, although most of the fans who saw them in those days were probably passed out by the end of 20 minutes. My <laughs> energy, you know. Yeah. Hey, can you imagine having to open for them? <laughs> I know. Oh, man. I, I that, that had to be the most daunting thing. I've opened, I feel like, you know, you've got guys like you who would open for singers and stuff like that. That's such a, a rare thing because it's not something that really, ha- I don't know why it stopped happening. I mean, when I started doing stand-up, I opened for a couple bands. Um, and then I think the last one I actually opened for, I did a music festival and I was the only comedian there and I opened for the Smithereens. And that was really cool. And I had known who they were and stuff like that. So it was a kind of a different experience, but it's not something that happens a lot. Was that, do, do you feel comfortable doing that kind of thing to the point where like, oh, yeah. 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 Years ago, if you would, when I started out in show business, there were no comedy clubs. There were none in America. Right. And then five years later, there were 550 comedy clubs in America. It was a boom. But mm-hmm. when I started out, we worked nightclubs. You, you, you know, um, there were, you know, all the nightclubs in America, as as you pointed out, I was with a comedy team. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. Yeah, history shows we were the last. There's never been one since. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote a book about that experience years ago in, in 2005 called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white. <clears throat> but we worked in those days all black clubs in the north and the south, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit, black owned, black operated nightclubs. Right, Grand in Detroit. Uh, that was where uh, Motown was in Detroit at that time. So all the Motown acts would go to the 20 grand uh, nightclub to break in their act before they went to Vegas. You know, mm-hmm. OJ's The Temptations, uh, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross and the Supremes, you know, all those kind of acts would break in their act at the 20 grand. And Tim and I would work there. We worked the Sugar Shack in Boston. We worked the uh, uh, High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear, the Cotton Club, and wow. we would club Harlem in Atlantic City before they had gambling. These were black owned, black operated nightclubs and they were you would open for singing acts, you know. And then mm-hmm. finally, when the team split up and I went on to do the Tonight Shows and everything, and I start working in Vegas, I opened for Sammy Davis Jr. I opened for uh, Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight, the Pips, uh, Matt wow. Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, James Zimmerman, Frankie Avalon. <clears throat> I opened again, uh, again, Smokey Robinson and, and then for Frank Sinatra, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a singer and a comic. If you went in the strip in Las Vegas in those days, all along the left side for a mile, and on the mm-hmm. for a mile, on the marquees was a comedian and a singer, or a singer and a comedian. But right. that, that's what the show was. And they wanted a 90-minute show. The opening act would do 25 minutes, and the headliner would do an hour and five, or you'd do 30 in, in an hour, you know, something like that. But a 90-minute show. Do you remember the first time you had opened for uh, a singer? Do you remember the um, instruction or the advice they gave you as a comic having to go up there? Like, was it um supportive of the comic or was it like hey get in and get out do your time you know and it's about it's not about you depending on what what inner what singer you were with 
uh, insecure singers might be worried that you're going to get a bigger reaction than them. Uh, they, but they also wanted you to get that audience up for them because people were always still filing in while they were while the show was starting. If they started on time, they right. would, you know you had to be the brunt of that. Of, uh, if it was a dinner room, where in the old days in Las Vegas they served dinner, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so you, you had to fight that element, the waiters and the waitresses and all that stuff. But the more secure the stuff, you know, when mm -hmm. I took Sammy Davis Jr., he was so supportive. He so understood because he had been an opening act a lot of this earlier part of his career. Right. Um, so depending on who you're working with, those who were comfortable in their skin, and also Sammy Davis Jr. knew, Frank Sinatra knew, Dean Martin knew when I were, they knew when they went out, they were going to get that crowd. Right. You know, so they, they would, you know, they, they were confident in their own skills. Um, insecure entertainers would might, now what you going to do and what you going to say and be careful about this. And, and I don't want you saying that. And, uh, you know, right, I, right. Yeah, was it what was the bonding period like? I mean, uh, when you were on the road with those guys, was it was it more like uh, on, like hanging out after the hotel? Did you guys have like a rapport? Immediately? Depending on who the artist was, but by and large, I you know I toured with Sammy Davis three years, and we remained friends till the day he died. I was at his funeral. I was at his private wake with nice. only people. Smokey Robinson and I are still the best of friends. We play golf. We hang out together. I I, I love him like a brother. We spend a lot of time together. You know. Um, uh, of course, um, uh, um, Mac Davis, Frankie Avalon, and I, I, I took with Frankie. We were under contract at the Clarence Hotel. We've, we've been friends for years. James wow. and I have been friends for years. Um, a, a lot of the, and then afterward, you know, we'd hang out like buddies. You know, um, again, Frank Sinatra was like a father to me toward the end of my life, you know. Right. And we, he hung out till dawn every night. You When you toured with Frank, he never went to bed till the sun came up, whether we were on the road or off the road. When I stayed at his home, uh, six times a year he wanted me to ride around the desert with him all night long or stay up with him you know in, in some bar that they'd give him frank there was a bar down there that would give frank the keys and they'd go home <laughs> a guy named chaplin sydney chaplin wow he was charlie chaplin's son and he owned oh a my god so mirage and uh we would hang there till, till dawn. i'll tell you a quick funny story yeah frank would always lock the door you know of course if a bartender stayed and they loved to stay because frank was a big tipper but mm -hmm. didn't I was an ex bartender, so I'd pour the drinks and make Frank a drink, and, and we stayed till the sun came up. One night he forgot to lock the front door. The bar was closed. Sydney went home. Uh -huh. Talking to Frank like this, like I'm talking to you, but Frank's back was to the door, and I saw a station wagon pull up outside the door. There was mm -hmm. a glass door you could see through, and I just figured they're going to try the door and it's locked. But he forgot to lock it, and a woman walked through the door, and she walked right up behind Frank Sinatra, and she said, "Excuse me." Excuse me, do they have a jukebox in here? And he turned around and he looked her right in the face and he said, I'm sorry, what did you say? She said, did they have a jukebox in here? And Frank looked around and he said, no, no, no. He said, I don't think so. And as a side, he said, I'll sing for you. She said, no, thanks. And she turned around and she walked out. <laughs> and he watched her like a little boy. He was watching her like that. And I said to him, she obviously didn't recognize you. He said, maybe she did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious so he so it was charlie chaplin's son that owned the place he did his name was sydney chaplin and he had been on broadway and and on um what was it um something oh he, he had been in a bye bye birdie he was he was in a play bye bye Birdie. yes he, he had made a little bit of money and then whatever money he made he he opened up that bar down in the desert and he wow. loved 
and oh, all bars love Frank because he, he was a big, huge tipper and spent it. Sure. So the three of you guys, I mean, you, Frank Sinatra, and then Chaplin's son hanging out. I mean, was it, did you guys, you know, bug him for Chaplin stories? And did he bug you guys for stories about the road and stuff? Like, what's the conversation like in that room at night at a bar? Sydney would go home. But nonetheless, I would bug him about it. <laughs> we had a real good relationship with him because he was like, I think from a, not from the first marriage or something like that. He was like, when Sydney married a younger woman, uh, um. or something like that. I mean, I'm sorry, Charlie did. But mm. on the road with Frank, if we were in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, uh, or, or uh, if we did one-nighters, we bolted out that same night to the next. Wow. But if we were in, in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, we'd hang out till dawn. After the shows, we would go sit in the back of some restaurant, and it would be Frank, and it would be uh, Julie Rizzo and, and um, his bodyguard and stuff, and maybe a couple guys from the show. At his home was mm -hmm. really because when we stayed in Rancho Mirage, his house guest, he had a big compound down there where you had a, a private security gate to come in. And when you got on the compound, there was a main house where Frank stayed. But on the outer perimeters were bungalows. And they were called New York, New York, Strangers in a Night, Tender Trap, My Way, named after his songs. Wow. His house guest would be Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, Kirk Douglas and his wife, Anne, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, Sidney Poitier and his wife, Joanne. It would be uh, um, Clint Eastwood and whoever he was dating at the time. Uh, <laughs> it would be... Uh, um, Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, Angie Dickinson, these, they would sit around till dawn and the women would eventually go to bed, but the guys would stay up. And for me, because these were people I saw in the movies when I was a little boy growing up, I would yeah. sit up, sit up at the table and I'd just be fascinated by their conversation, wishing I had a, a microphone there and a, and a camera as they would talk about films, uh, you know, um, to kill a mockingbird and, and Frank films from here to eternity and et cetera. It was just fascinating to be around them. Do you have like a particular story that you can remember that you cannot, I mean, don't say anything you can't actually repeat if you don't want to, but is there one particular story from somebody that got you? Like, I cannot believe they're saying this out loud. Time after time after time, every night, John, what I would do <clears throat> ever before I ever met Frank, <clears throat> Jim Reed and I first went in the show business. I so love showrooms. I never thought I would be in this business. I never thought I'd ever be a comedian. It was the furthest thing from my mind, even though I admired comedians my whole life. But I, I, I would go back to the room wherever I was. If something funny or poignant happened that night, I would journal it. I would write it down. And, nice. and what my book is about. It's still standing. It's, mm -hmm. it, this was the conglomeration of all my notes that I took through the years. So I could tell you, and there's many stories in the book, <clears throat> but there, you know, there's one story I won't tell you now because it's too long. But how Frank Sinatra saved Johnny Carson's life from a mob hit, you know, and it and it's um, and the only reason I told the story was Frank, uh, Julie Rizzo told me verbatim what happened, and then Frank Sinatra told me exactly what Julie told me three weeks later, and I wow. believe both of them how it happened. And the only reason I told the story was Johnny Carson's lawyer Henry Bushkin wrote a book later in life where he tried to take credit. For saving Johnny's life from crazy Joey Gallo, but oh my God. story from Julie, I realized only one person could have saved Johnny's life at that time, and that was Frank Sinatra. It happened when Johnny was a new star in New York when the Tonight Show was in New York and they just started out there. Mm -hmm. Johnny was new, and he did a real dumb thing one night in Julie's bar uh, to a girlfriend of Joey Gallo, and uh, and I, I, it's too long to explain now. But that story is one that I'll never forget because it'll make your hair stand on end. And right. 
And when you read the book, you got a lot of hair to be standing on end. You know, I've read that. I've read that excerpt from the book, man, and I, it is it is chilling and crazy. And that's one of those things. I see. I, it's their story sounds so. I mean, when you think about what's going on today, and like kind of the celebrity culture we have, whatever, it does seem like there's no way this happened. You know what I mean? Sure. But it. But I, I love hearing from guys like you that it actually is true, and that's exactly how it went down. You know what I know? I, one thing I knew about Frank Sinatra, he wasn't a big talker. But when we got alone, if Frank told you something, you could take it to the bank. And yeah. That Julie told me that story, and three weeks later, Frank told me it verbatim. You know, Julie told me alone, as you read the book. Mm -hmm. But on the positive side of, of the many things, I mean, I'll tell you, one night I'm watching, I'm listening to all these people I just mentioned talk about film mm -hmm. and directing. And I noticed that they were showing great reverence to Frank Sinatra. These actors, Gregory Peck, Jack Lemon, you know, um, uh, Clint Eastwood was at the table that night. Robert. Uh, Robert Wagner, um, yeah. uh, Kirk Douglas, that whenever Frank spoke, they showed a lot of reverence. And finally, I was curious, because you know, in Hollywood, I studied acting in, in Illinois, in Chicago, and also out here. But usually, comedians or actors out here, they'll tell you, if you mention acting, they'll tell you who they studied with. And of course, mm -hmm. the bigger the name, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the better it was, you know, whoever. Mm -hmm. they so uh, I was curious when they were showing so much reverence to Frank, I said, Frank, did you study acting? I want to know who you studied with. I said, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm hard. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. Wow. He was in the rough you didn't fool with. You know, right. That, that, he was a brilliant actor. Forget about the fact that acting, he danced with Gene Kelly, for God's sake. Yeah. He won the Academy Award and he didn't study acting. That's why I tell everybody what separated him from all the other singers, when you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it became a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Frank wow. puts himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him, and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. You yeah. Every, every lyric in there. He, he, he was, um, Charlton Heston once said, to watch Frank Sinatra sing a song is like watching a four-minute movie, or like a film. You know? Yeah. And, and the joy of a song, you know. Yeah, my grandfather was the one who got me into Frank Sinatra. I mean, he had every album, every CD when it came. You know, after that, he always upgraded his collection, always was on top of what he was doing. Um, I mean, I think to this day, I mean, my grandfather passed away a while ago, but I still have his number in my phone. Strangers in the Night is what he would, you know, I think what we all had set to him when he would call. And it's just, you know, I watched every tape that Frank Sinatra had, every roast, every movie he was in. Uh, it's just a huge part. Even my dad's side of the family, same thing. He was always just like a staple. It was like they knew him just because of how passionate he was when he was singing and when he was on stage and how he connected with his audience. He was singing to you in front of 20,000 people, John. Mm -hmm. 20,000 people. And he'd start to sing and he'd bring it all down to here. That guy in the furthest seat up in that arena felt like he was in a bar with Frank and Frank was singing to him. Right. He had that incredible... Ability, you know, the, the young entertainers today, they try to excite audiences with a lot of uh, technical stuff, laser lights and things like that. Mm -hmm. There was a laser light. Sammy Davis yeah. was a laser light. You know, they, they when you said strangers tonight, it's another story that's in the book, but it's true story. One night, I'm writing around with Frank in the, in the book, I mean, in the desert, and I put it in the book that we were talking and talking, and he told me something very personal something really personal. And we were driving, coming towards his compound. And he said to me, I shouldn't have told you that. 
And I said, well, it won't go any further than this car. He said, I know, but I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, again, it's not going any further than this car. And it's not like we're strangers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what made me do it. But I looked at him and I said, strangers in the night, glances. <laughs> he said, for God's sake, if you're going to sing that song, get in key. <laughs> so he started going, strangers in the night. I said, exchanging glances. He said, wandering in the night. I said, for the chance. And we were doing this song back and forth. Now we pulled in the compound and he always, you know, said, good night, Tom. Yeah. He, go, he goes to his house and I go to bungalow. I'm thinking if I went back to him, I went to my bungalow. And if I thinking, if I went back to my old neighborhood, all the guys in the bar. And I said, you know what I was doing? I was just riding around with Frank Sinatra and we were singing Strangers in the Night. They'd say, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it happened. Right. right. And, and I'll never forget it. It was a moment, many moments uh, with him that I'll never forget, but that was another one. That's beautiful, man. <clears throat> when you're doing stand-up and you got, you're opening for Smokey Robinson, you're opening for Frank Sinatra, all those different audiences. As a comedian, are you switching material up based on who you're opening for? Do you have a set that you know kills no matter what in front of a musician, in front of an audience of your time? Or are you are you going with the flow and seeing what, you know, what the audience is like each time you go out? You know, what, <clears throat> here's the thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I was touring with Smokey or, or Sammy, I was doing the Tonight Shows. I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. Every time you did The Tonight Show, you had to come up with a new six minutes. Mm -hmm. I was in the habit of always writing new material. Right. Right. You know, some current material, but always new material. So, and that's one of the reasons Frank wanted me to tour with him, because he wanted to use a younger comedian at that time. I was a young guy. And because we were going to the same cities every year, and we're returning to Vegas and Tahoe and Reno and everything. So I was always writing new material. Uh, but I stayed true to me. What, what mm -hmm. I felt as a stand-up comedian that I wanted to do. I didn't patronize an audience, uh, you know. However, you know, I, I work all Jewish audiences in my life, and I have a lot of material from growing up. I caddied an all-Jewish country club. Right. I'm Irish-Italian, but I had material about growing caddying at a club. I, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood um, because my family was, we were very poor. We had eight kids, lived in a shack. So I shined mm -hmm. in taverns with the black kids that I grew up with. I, I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime and I sold newspapers on the corner and, and I played basketball on all black basketball team and, and, and football. So what I did, I have an album out in front of an all black audience called that white boy's crazy. Right. I'm, I'm the only white kid you never do an Great album. album. But I, but I, it was, it was because I could, I could adapt, you know, mm -hmm. um, to whatever audience. And when I work all Italian audiences, that's, that's a killer because it's so much fun. You can, you know, you can do stuff about, uh, a tie-in and so on and so on. But that part I would do, but not the whole act. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, one of the one of the greatest lines, whenever I talk to young comedians, and I don't I'm not including you in this because you're a professional. I mean you've been you've been Yeah. yeah. Well, when I'm talking to newcomers and they'll ask me for advice, I'll say Candid Camera had the greatest line of them all, caught in the act of being yourself. Mm. That was one of their leads and hey, we're doing a show tonight and you're gonna caught in the act of being yourself. I said, when you become a comedian on stage, most all of us start out emulating another comedian, doing right. an impression of another comedian because we know that work. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so you're doing whatever. I can look at a new kid on and, and, and a Monday night or a, a guy or a girl, but I, I can tell who maybe their favorite is, if it's uh, Seinfeld or, Lam or Chris Rock or whoever. But right. when you start out, we do that. We emulate another comedian because we knew that work. One night, 
you let a little bit of you out when you're new. If it doesn't get a laugh, you pull back in and you start doing that impression of the comedian again. But mm-hmm. when you say something, ad lib or something yourself, and it gets a laugh, and ooh, next night you let a little bit more of you out, a little bit more, and pretty soon you become you on the stage. And that's when you arrive. That's when you start to really grow. When you're so comfortable in being, you know, John Provoromo or Tom Dreesen, you know, when, right. when and, and I, I, earlier in my career, I had realized that and I started to become very comfortable just being me on stage with whatever audience I was in front of. Yeah, that's the greatest. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's a great way to put it. But that is the greatest feeling in the world when you hit it, when you're on stage and it happens. When you Do you remember the first time it happened to you when you were on stage? You mean when I scored doing it? Yeah. Yeah, it happened, you know, one night. Well, first of all, when I was with Tim Reed, I was a comedy team. And I and so I had to be a, always aware of my comedy partner and our timing and mm-hmm. everything. And I played characters inside of our roles, you know. When I went off alone, and when the, the team stood up and I went off alone, uh, I remember one specific night that they asked me to do the church that I went to back in, in Harvey, Illinois. They asked me to, there was a charity thing. They wanted me to MC and raise some money for them. And mm-hmm. I just wrote a bunch of material about going to that school. And that night, I just, because they, they, I mean, a built-in audience, they, they went to that school too. And I... <laughs> I and I all I did was be me. I didn't. I wasn't doing anything else. And I walked out and I said, "This is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. I want to be me. I, I want to." You know, uh, and I, I, it, it was such a great feeling that I didn't have to put on an act, right, know, uh, to do this. I just had to be me. You know, again, yeah. caught in the act of being yourself. That's great, man. That's, <laughs> when you were touring with Tim Reed, were you guys and like? You ever felt like you were in danger? Did I ever feel that way? And the fourth time on stage, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and then tried to beat the hell out of me. Holy shit. I boxed when I was in the Navy, but this guy outweighed me for like 100 pounds. You know, um, he, he he pummeled me and we rolled all of the tables and chairs. I mean, you know, you got to remember 1969 when we went on stage. Let me give you the backdrop. Robert Kennedy was just assassinated. Martin Luther King was just assassinated a couple of years before. The Civil mm-hmm. Rights Act was passed in 1964. So this is 69. We were five years removed from that. People weren't integrating, you know, at, at, you, you know, there was still all black clubs and all white clubs, even though they could by right. law. They still weren't doing it in a lot of places in the South we went, and in the North. And, and here we were going across the land, just trying to make people laugh. In those days, you didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone on a stage together. Right. You know, so anywhere there was racial tension, we would go. We we did eleven prisons in one year. We did oh, the county wow. jail in Chicago three times. The county jail. We anywhere wow. there was racial tension, we would go there. The interesting thing about racism in those days, John, there was a we worked in our black club, and there was a black guy who hated white people, hated mm-hmm. them, passion. He wasn't mad at, at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. Wow. See, he was a redneck, a racist redneck white guy who hated right. people with a passion. He wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. Wow. That was a kind of insanity. Now, it, it wasn't a lot. We scored. We did well. You know, but but there was that one little tiny element that was there in those days, you know, that, that, um, that you know, when we walked out on stage in a place, you know, you'd be talking, and all of a sudden you go, what's this all about? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of white guy. You know. What I'm was sorry. the thing that kept you guys going? 
Well, first of all, you know, we we love what we were doing. We really, mm -hmm. and and I can't tell you how many times in our career, and Tim will tell you the same thing. This means more to me than anything in all the years we've toured together. I can't tell you how many times after a show at a college, high school, and even in a prison, you know, where a white guy would come up and say, you know, I got a black friend that I'd like to reach out to, but if I do, the white guys are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tim tonight, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. And then a black kid would come up and say to, say to us, you know, I got a white friend that I really like, but if I do, the brothers are going to call me. In. But after watching you and Tim, I'm going to do, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. That meant more to us than anything. Well, we weren't preaching. We were just having fun on stage. Yeah. But see, all over America in those days, and, and listen to what I'm talking about, when I finish, you'll say the same shit is happening today. All over America in those days, people were saying, you know, we need, we need more discourse among the races. You know, we need more discourse. We need more. We need better race relations. Well, when you watch Tim and Tom, guess what we were having? A race relation. We were having a discourse that America wasn't having. Right. We fun. Again, we weren't preaching. We weren't trying to hammer people over the head. We were having fun together. We were friends, and you could tell that. You know, mm -hmm. love for one another. You could tell that. You know, uh, Jerry Lewis told me something very interesting one time. He said when him and Dean started out, he said they were they love one another. He said in the audience sensed that we loved one another, and he said they also sensed when we didn't love one another. Wow. Yeah. In interesting. Huh? That is interesting. Yeah. That's a good point though too, because you could feel even even when I was a kid when I would watch it towards the end of their like run together, it seemed like something was kind of off. Yeah. 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 And it's weird. Even happened in Costello too. Like, I feel like the, the later movies and stuff like that, like the, there was a, a missing chemistry or a missing piece. Something yeah. didn't seem like, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. When it isn't, yeah. when that, when it, when it, then it becomes an act. Yes. You know, I, I, again, another thing I tell young comedians, I say, if you never forget anything else I say, remember this, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your right. you damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. Right. It's a conversation, not a presentation, you know. Absolutely. Do you did you have any other when you were a kid, was comedy and, and that performing always your passion, or did you want to be something else initially? I never ever thought of ever being in show business. I grew up so poor, you know, it's the furthest thing from my mind. However, mm -hmm. we didn't have a television in the shack that I lived in. Everybody else didn't have a TV. We had an old radio, and I used to listen to Bob Hope, Jack Benny on the radio. Mm -hmm. And I, and there was another show, Can You Top This? It was four or five comedians sitting around, and they'd throw a subject out, and they all had a joke on that subject. It's a gas station, and they'd do gas station jokes. Nice. You know, but <clears throat> I found that fascinating. However, I also shined shoes in all the taverns in my neighborhood, <clears throat> excuse me, to help feed my brothers and sisters. One of the taverns I shined shoes in, there was 36 taverns in Harvey, Illinois, a suburb on the south side of Chicago. Wow. Six taverns in my hometown, but there were eight in my neighborhood. And so I would shine shoes in all the bars in my neighborhood. And the last one I went to was Frank Polizzi owned the bar, my mother's brother-in-law, her sister's husband. And he owned the bar. My mother was a bartender there. So I'd mm -hmm. go to his bar last to wait for the shifts to change in the factory. And then I'd go back out to the bars again. But while I was sitting there waiting there, you know, my mother, of course, was there. Frank Polizzi told jokes behind the bar. And it fascinated me that this guy, with his vocabulary, with mm -hmm. his, his vernacular, <clears throat> could cause this sound. He'd hit that punchline and cause this sound to come out of everybody's body that filled the room like electricity. 
and united everybody. I right. thought it was so cool that I, I would memorize his jokes and I'd tell him at school many that should not be told on a great uh, Catholic school playground, you know. But, <laughs> but, did uh, your did your family kind of take to it when you told them you wanted to be a comedian? Did you even tell them or did you just start doing it and then you kind of, when you made your money, told them? I was married and had three kids. I came wow. out of the after four years. I was working on the loading dock. I was, I, I was a teamster. I dropped my union card and I became foreman of, of the teamsters that I used to work with. I was a photographer. I was a private detective. I was a bartender. I went from job to job. I sold life insurance. I went from job to job, never feeling fulfilled. I'd be in a bar with my buddies at one o'clock in the morning saying, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belonged. Mm -hmm. And I'm being honest. I used to pray. I used to say, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? This can't be it. I felt so unfulfilled. And I'd pray. Mm -hmm. I joined a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce. And they did civic projects. They, whatever problems were in the community, they would go work on that problem and try to solve that problem for the community. But in doing so, you, uh, you receive leadership training. You know, you learn how to serve on a committee, chair a committee. You learn Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct meetings, so forth and so on. And, and, um, and, and anyhow, and, but I just want to digress. I still emcee many major functions today, corporation for corporations. A lot of it, is, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a good emcee because of my training with the JCs, Robert's Rules of Order, how to conduct meetings. I know how to keep the program moving with content. Right. You know. But anyhow, and one of the biggest problems in our community then was our youth using drugs. So I wrote a drug education program teaching elementary school children, eighth graders, the ills of drug abuse with humor. I would get the kids laughing. The program was to get the kids laughing and play some music. And once we calmed them down and got their attention, plant the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. Nice. On the first day, and again, I'll digress. I was praying. Mm -hmm. What is I'm supposed to be doing? The first day I proposed this project to the JC so that they would sanction it as a JC project, at a meeting, I had to propose it. Now, a young black guy, Tim Reed, had just mm -hmm. chapter, E.I. DuPont recruited him out of Norfolk State College in the Chicago to work for E.I. DuPont. So he joined the JCs. He came up and he said, I'd like to help you with that project. I said, gee, I'm sorry. I already have a guy, a friend of mine, a white guy named John DeBoer, was my buddy, <clears throat> and he was going to help me. The next morning, and I told Tim, I'm sorry, I got a guy. The next morning, as fate would have it, or my prayer was answered, John DeBoer called me and said, I got a job, a new job, Tom. I can't help you with that project. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. He joins me. We worked on the project, worked on it. We went into the school system. You know, we'd make the kids laugh and everything. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs used it through their publications as a model program on how to teach drug education at an eighth grade level. They weren't teaching in those days at a college or a high school level, let alone at an eighth grade level. But right. I went to them before they went to high school. Anyhow, wow. one day, a little eighth grade girl leaving the classroom looked at Tim and I and said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the wow. thought of black white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. Right. Writing material, what we thought was funny. And, and then we went into some clubs. You know, there, Again, there were no comedy clubs in those days. Mm -hmm. so, we went into some clubs and uh, and, we, and we finally started going good. And like I told you, on a, a place called the Golden Horseshoe in Chicago Heights, Illinois, on the fourth show, a drunken redneck, you know, uh, tried to tried to beat the hell out of both of us. You know, Jesus. In University yeah. of Illinois, one time, a guy went outside in the snow and packed an ice ball and hit me right in the face with it. Holy shit! Smacked me in the face, I, and and I went 
And I, Chappelle is complaining about getting tackled at the Hollywood Bowl. Come on. Well, Have you called him? Have you talked to him about that? <laughs> no, but I, I'd like to tell him I've been there, done that. You know, but when yeah. I, when I, you know, I'm a street guy. I don't have a degree from academia. I got a doctorate from the street. I grew up on the streets. You know, I, I, again, I was a high school dropout. I went mm -hmm. in at 17. I got a high school diploma from the Navy. Then I went to junior college nights studying political science and stuff like that. And wandering aimlessly. But I, I'm a street guy, you mm -hmm. know, and, and I've got a, I got a degree in common sense. But as a street guy, you know, I had a lot of fights growing up. I had my nose broke twice. You know, I'm not bragging about these things, but that's how you reacted where I grew up. And I grew up in a neighborhood where if you were in a bar and you were arguing about the Cubs and the White Sox, the other guy might say outside. You know, that was a word in my neighborhood. Outside. That meant you right. were not They'd fight over Cub and White Sox games, you know. But mm -hmm. when this guy hit me in the face with that ice ball and I realized, Tim didn't even realize what happened. I first said, pow, it hit me. You know, and I at first I thought somebody hit me with a bottle because my face was what I thought it was blood. Right. When I realized what happened, we're in the dark. You know, I couldn't see the audience. I went berserk. I called this guy every name in the book, and I kept screaming, "Turn the lights on! Turn! The, I want to see you, chicken shit, son of a bitch! You know, sh show me who you are. Where are you? I'm cursing, calling now the audience. Thought it was a bit. I guys <laughs> and MFs and others. I've got every name I could think of. Tim thought I lost my mind. Because he <laughs> at first what happened to me. Right. And, 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 and of course, we couldn't get the show back after that. Oh, that, my God. Tim said to me, and we were relatively new. He said, you've got to be a little more professional, Tom. You're a little more I said, Tim, that snowball came from, you You worked to my right all the time. That snowball came from that side. Right. I said, I think that guy was aiming at you. But he up, he went upstage on me just for a second for this bit we're doing and hit me. You know, Tim wow. said, we should have killed that guy. We should have killed that guy. Oh man, when you guys so you, when you guys wound up breaking up, he went on to do WKRP, and then you went to just do straight stand up at that point. Had you been preparing your own material like a stand up act? How did you reform the comedy duo thing to then go do the Tonight Show and then go do that kind of stuff, match game and and your own and your own solo stuff? I thought it was over. I really mm -hmm. thought it was over when when the team split up. My ex wife, I forgot her name. Oh yeah, plaintiff. Um, <laughs> she she wanted me out of show business. And I don't blame her. She didn't marry a comedian. She married a working guy, you know, I was in the military, came up. Her father worked in a factory for almost 40 years, never missed a day. A check was there every Friday. You know how comedy is when you first yeah. start. There's no money. <clears throat> and for me to go in such a precarious business with a wife and three kids, and Tim had a wife and two kids. Right. You know, again, there were no comedy clubs. So she wanted me out of the business. So finally, after six years with Tim, she thought it's over now, mm -hmm. you know, and I was sitting in the bar one night thinking, what the hell am I going to do? What am I going to do? I wanted, I didn't want to leave show business. I was always very good in my life at alternatives. When, when, when I get my back against the wall, I, I don't give up. I say, okay, okay. There's got to be a way. There's got to be an answer, a solution to this problem. So I was sitting at this bar and, and they were closing the bar. My buddy named Jimmy Lepore, he owned a bar called the Soaky Inn. And I used to, and bar there, and I was a bouncer there at one time too, as a little guy. You know, but I, you know, I, we had some things to break fights up when they started in the bar. You know, so right. Anyhow, but I, I was sitting at that bar, and and um, they were closing up, and I had two beers in front of me, and a couple guys had bought a drink. When you got too many drinks in front of you, they give you a little shot glass and set it upside down. That means you got one more coming. I'm sitting mm -hmm. there taking this beer with two beers in front of me. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I could either find another black guy 
and continue what we were doing. Right. I could quit this business and make my wife happy, get out of show business, or I could go it alone. And I sat there and I said, I'm going to go it alone. And I had done this emceeing, you know, in a, a couple of times for charities where I did some stand up alone. You know, not, I didn't have a lot of material with them, but I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go it alone. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get them. And I said, thinking, I always set goals. I said, my ultimate goal will be get to the Tonight Show. In those days, in 1975, wherever you went in America, mm -hmm. say, what do you do for a living? You <clears throat> say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been yeah. on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. One appearance on that show, 27 million people watch that show. One appearance on that show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. Yeah. You know, one appearance in your life changed. So I said, okay, that's my goal. I want to be on the Tonight Show. And I remember a book I read by Clement Stone, Positive Mental Attitude. It said, if you know what you want to do in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to make it? And I said, drinking. I love to drink. I love to drink with the guys and hang out. I'm a neighborhood guy. I love to drink. I said, that could stop me. Waking up with hangovers and everything. Yeah, so that's and I pushed the two beers across the bar, and my buddy Jimmy came up the bar and he said, "You're through for tonight, Tommy." I said, "I quit, Jimmy." He said, "You're through for tonight." I said, "I quit, Jimmy." He said, "You." I said, "I quit drinking." He said, "Yeah, right. I'll see you tomorrow night." <laughs> <laughs> I never stopped drinking from that moment on, and I did. I worked and worked and worked on my act. And I came yeah. up to the West Coast, and I left my wife and three kids back there. She wrote me a dear John while I was there. You know, I was house sitting a house for a little while. Then I couldn't even sit there. And I got this letter. She wrote me a dear John. Then I got kicked out of that, of doing that, that uh, I couldn't stay at that home anymore that I was house sitting. I ended up sleeping in an old Nash Rambler that was up on blocks in the alley mm -hmm. of this person's house that I was house sitting. And I, I, I stayed in that car. The front seat came down. So I used it as a bed. And I wow. hitched up and down Sunset Boulevard every night, begging to work for free at the comedy store. And, who was your, when you worked at the comedy store, who was your crew? Did you have like a, a, a bunch of comedian friends and people that you kind of went around I was with? Stage every night, I was going on stage at the comedy store with all these unknown comedians David mm -hmm. Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Gallagher, Michael Keaton. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. You know? Oh my God. I would go on stage with Elaine Boozler. Uh, I mean, they were, you know, we were, I was even, I had a little more experience than some of them because I'd been in the business a little bit. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I, First one to break out and do the Tonight Show, you know, mm -hmm. before David and before Jay and and then, but um, uh, but that's but I hung, you know, David and I are still the best of friends. Jay, oh, I nice. see all the time, you know, and uh, David and I played basketball together. We played racquetball together. We hang together even to this day. I I, I love him dearly, you know, and uh, and right. I know he'd do anything for me, and, and I do anything for him. That's really sweet, man. That's good that you still have those friendships. Because I remember there's a bunch of comedy books. I'm, I was such a comedy nerd when I was a kid. I would come up and I, I had all of them. I had a, a Comics Life. I had um, uh, Franklin Ajay's book, Comic Insights. Um, all the ones that came out. There was one I can't remember exactly. It followed around Richard Lewis. I can't remember. The, I think it's oh, it was Standing Up or, or it whatever. It's called I'm Dying Up Here. I'm Dying Up Here. That's a great. I've got that book too. Richard. Um, Needle uh, he wrote for the LA Times. Great yeah. guy. One one of the uh, critics wrote in New York. He said, "You open that book because on the cover of that book was Robin Williams, uh, Andy Kaufman, uh, Richard Lewis, and I think Letterman and Leno or something." 
And the guy said, you open that book for Leatherman or Leno, but you leave with Tom Dreesen because that book was really more about me than it was about any of those guys. Absolutely. Uh, when you, what was the, I mean, you were, you were uh, part of the comedy store strike. How were you close? Were you really close to Mitzi? Was that a painful kind of situation to go through? It was because I love Mitzi. She was, a, she was good to me. She, you know, and, and when, Hey, by the way, when, when I came out here, the comedy store was the only game in town. There was no improvisation or laugh factory. Right. It was the only game in town. So your audition for Mitzi, if you're going to get to the tonight show, that's where they came. All the talent coordinators came to the comedy store. Yeah. Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, um, uh, Dinosaur, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand, uh, all those shows and sitcoms for the talent people came there. So every night somebody was getting discovered there. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't get on at the comedy store, it's back to Toledo, pal. It's back to Harvey, Illinois. You know, so the audition for Mitzi was more pressure than anything you could imagine. Because if she didn't like you, it's over. So when I finally I auditioned for her, she I had worked in the past and she could see I had stage presence. I mean, so she she got she gave me a time slot and I became a regular after a while. So I thought the world of her. So meanwhile, I I worked there for almost a year. I got I lobbied all the shows. I finally got the Tonight Show to come and see me. And then I got my first appearance on the Tonight Show. My whole world changed. And, and now I'm working Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City. I'm touring with Sammy Davis Jr. at that time. And every weekend I'd come home, I'd go to the comedy store to try out new material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because I was doing the Tonight Shows too, and I was doing all these other shows, you know. So I would always work on new material. I'd come home and I'd, I'd sign up, on, you know, even while I was at Caesars Palace or wherever I was at. Hey, I'm coming home, put me on the schedule this weekend. Anyhow, every time you'd go there, we worked in the original room, which is about mm -hmm. 120 seats, small room, as you know. Right. You know, that's where we went. The Mitchy bought that, that, by the way, the comedy store for people listening who don't know, many years ago, it was Ciro's, C I R O S, a famous nightclub where all the stars performed there. Right. In that building. Well, Mitchy owned a little corner of it. Well, she bought the other guy out, and on the other side was the main room where they used to perform, 400 seater. Well, she put Jackie Mason there, Rodney Dangerfield. They got the door. She took the drinks and the, and the food. Right. So, charge 40 bucks at the door or 20 bucks at the door, whatever you charge a person, that all went to the entertainer and she took the drinks and food. One night I come back, I think I'm going to the original, I come off the road. They said, oh, you're in the main room, Tom. I said, the main room, what? Well, I go in the main room, it's David Letterman, Robin Williams, Gallagher, me, Michael Keaton, it's it's uh, Elaine Boozler, you know, Jay Leno. After, I, when I go on stage, I went, holy cow, I feel like I'm back in Vegas with this big room, you know? But I wasn't, right. afterward we all go to Cantor's a, a restaurant on Fairfax Avenue, we'd mm -hmm. all hang out till dawn. And in comes Jay and he's saying, hey, this is bullshit, man. I mean, she pays those other guys. Now, maybe it took five or six of us to fill that room, but, you know, we still filled the room. Yeah. And we start talking about the center and they wanted to get a meeting. When I go to the meeting with my buddies, I'm making money. I'm making yeah. money. I'm on the road. I'm doing great. But I, these are my friends. So I go and they were in utter chaos. You know, you ever get 60, 80, 100 comedians in a room? Oh, my God. Is there yeah, <laughs> we come up with the conclusion is we should have another meeting. It was in more chaos, and finally I got up on stage because of my JC background, and I said, mm -hmm. oh, "Let me, let me, I'll, do, I'll, I'll conduct the meeting. I'll, I'll get you, or, get them organized." You know, mm -hmm. quite, 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 hold on, hold on, Gallagher, hold on. Jay's got the floor. Hold on, Jay, make your, make your point. Put it in the form of a motion. I said, committee, subcommittees, and got them organized. And when you got them organized, they were a force to be reckoned with. These were some bright, bright minds. And 
And, and then so finally I became like the spokesman. Un, un, I wish the hell I wouldn't have been. You know, I mean, you know, the last thing I wanted to be, I looked like Jimmy Hoffa there for a while, you know. But <laughs> back to Mitzi, because I knew Mitzi and I liked Mitzi and I, and I had a great relationship with her. And I'd sit down with her and say, Mitzi, got to pay the comics. Can you pay the comic? No, they don't deserve to be paid. They don't. De-. You know, wow. finally, one night, the comics are talking about going on strike and this this is getting really hot and heavy. And, and one night, I'm laying in bed and I jumped out of bed. I was married at the time. I, I said to my wife, I, I scared the hell out of it. She said, what's wrong? I said, I got it. Why didn't I think of this? I got it. I went in the next morning. I waited for Mitchie to come. And I said, Mitchie, you're charging five bucks at the door. Charge six bucks. Let the comedians have that one dollar. Charge six dollars. Let them have that one dollar. If 100 people show up, they spend 100 bucks for the night. If right. 200 people show up, they spend 200. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. And that rocked my world because I thought it was about money. Right. It was about money. We could resolve this issue. It was about control. And wow. she want to pay the comedians and 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 anyhow that, that be, it, it became a, a eight week strike the comics voted to go on strike I, I was on and then then they also voted rather than have six comedians talking to the media there let one comedian do it or we're gonna you know we're gonna, we're gonna diffuse our, our message here or something so they said oh let Tom do it and uh, again I regret that because I became the face of this face like, like and then because I'm part of Italian, I even had a guy try to connect me with the mob in Chicago. Holy I'm, shit. On the line, John. He said, didn't you work? Weren't you a teamster? I said, yeah, I, I, was, I worked on a loading dock. Yeah. He said, uh, uh, now, weren't you a member of the team? I said, oh, yeah, I was. But I had to, you, you, when you worked 30 days on the loading dock, you became an automatic teamster, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, you know, after six months, I had to drop my card to become management, you know. Wow. But I was I knew a lot about arbitration and things like that. So long story short, uh, it, it became a real burden on me for eight weeks. I had six gigs with Sammy Davis, Jr. It came came to fifty thousand dollars in those days was a lot of money. Yeah. And I had to call Sammy and said, Sammy, I'm in a fight. And I've been this way ever since I was a kid. If I get in a fight, I want to win. I don't care if it's basketball, baseball, pool, whatever. Mm-hmm. I want to win. And he said, I understand, Tommy, and don't worry about it. When this is over, you're doing the right thing. You can come back on the road with me. And it lasted eight weeks. And, and wow. it was, it was, and I'm, I'm, believe it or not, it's a, for 40 years, I never went back to the comedy store. Because really? Steve Lebeckin committed suicide not long yeah. afterward, as you know. Gonna... And it broke my heart. It crushed me. Yeah. And, and so I, I just never went back. But now they did the documentary on the comedy store. And Mike Binder called me, and Peter Shore, Mitchie's son, asked me if I would do the documentary and would I come back. So I've been going back now, and I, and I uh, in, on the road, when I call to it, I go work the main room, and it's really, really it's kind of nice. It, I was going to ask, yeah, because I, I, first of all, I love that documentary. That uh, We had Mike Binder on the show recently, um, but when that documentary came out, it was I thought it was an important time for it to come out because it was right, I think, probably in the middle of COVID or when we were we were still locked down. I know that. Yeah. And nobody was performing anymore. But I loved seeing in that documentary the comedy store through the decades and the entire store and comedians and kind of the way we do business go from comedy's amazing to comedy's over, comedy's amazing to the store is going to close, comedy's am- you know what I mean? Like, and in through all those decades, it went through this cycle. That made me feel like even through COVID, comedy's going to be okay. Yeah. And we were going to be able to come back from it. Did you, was it, when you first stepped in, when you were doing that documentary, when you first stepped into the store, how much time did you take, man? Did you get to walk around a little bit and kind of be back in there for the first time? And like, how did it hit you? It really, you know, Mike Binder filmed me. If you remember, he 
took me in the car and they filmed me driving down Sunset Strip to come back to the comedy store. Yeah. Mike showed me around. And, and it was kind of um, very sweet because all these memories came flooding back, you know, of, of those days of struggle, of those, mm -hmm. you know, when I walked off stage when I had the comedy store and out in the parking lot was this kid with a beard and he had an old beat up red pickup truck. He just drove in from Indianapolis. And he said, gee, you really did a good show, Mr. Dreesen. I said, thank you. What is your name? He said, Dave Letterman. I'm from Indianapolis. You know, and we started talking and became friends. I mean, all that memory came back. And then, and not only that, where Steve Lebeck, and when he jumped off the top of the Continental Hyatt House, where he landed, he dove toward the comedy. So, I mean, that hit me hard. The, 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 yeah. the whole thing. And, 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 but I went on stage and, and, and the audience was great. And, and, and I, it, you know, it, it made me it calmed me a little bit you know but um it, it was it was kind of a strange feeling you know that um hard to describe because it's a different we I, I i'm sure they bond today but we had a strong bond among the group that we were with and yeah. and and it continues to this day and and i didn't know but i have to say a lot of the young comedians came up to me and and said you know hey i'm glad you're here glad you're back it made me feel comfortable too Oh, that's awesome, man. The bond that you guys have, I mean, again, like I used to be such a comedy nerd. I still am, but like I, I read all the books, stuff like that. I, I feel like, yeah, there's a there's a definite bond today. And I think maybe it was still stronger back then because a lot of you guys did move out wet. You know what I mean? Like you you literally left everything you knew behind. And then what you had in common was comedy. There wasn't any social media. So you had that circle. You know, you guys were out. each. You, you were the only ones who understood each other. Um, you know, you were, you were hanging out late at diners. If you had families, if you didn't have families, you guys were each other's support system. So that I think is probably where that, that what much stronger bond came from than probably what we have today. Well, and also too, you remember it's an interesting thing that I'll say in those days, as I'm not repeating what I said before, it sounds like it, but a person would come and say, Hey, what do you do for a living? You'd say, I'm a stand up comedian. They'd go, wow, Martha, honey, come here. Honey, he's a stand-up comedian, honey. He's a stand-up comedian. You know what they say today? So what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a stand-up comedian. So is my dentist. My dentist does it on me. <laughs> you know, That's wife, so fucking true, dude. Yeah, my wife's gynecologist. She's she's a comedian too. I mean, everybody, everybody's a comedian today. I know, man. It's it is. It's one of those. It's funny because people will do the same thing. Where like, I'll say I'm a comedian, and then they'll go to follow me on social media, and they'll be like. Oh, we didn't know you were serious because I've got, you know, like they'll, they'll actually see like a body of work and who I've been with. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I was serious about it or whatever. Or they'll just laugh. And I went I was in the hospital like a few months ago, not to brag, uh, but I did. I wound up in the hospital. I wasn't feeling that great. But they were like, what do you do? And I had to, you know, I said, I, I'm a comedian. And then they were like, oh, OK, we, we get it. And then they literally just wrote unemployed. And I was like, that works, too, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, that's fair enough too. But then the guy, like the doctor came in and was like, what do you, we actually have to put something down. And I was like, I'm a comedian. And they're like, oh really? Like then they got excited. But I was like, could you also just help me? I feel like shit. Uh, you know, it was just weird, man. But it's, it's so funny the way they react. Yeah. Well, I, again, it, it was such a, uh, and again, it, it, there were no comedy clubs. So once you've got 550 comedy clubs in America, there were three in Tulsa, Oklahoma at one time. Yeah. You fill those slots. You know, you got to put inventory in there. You know, you have a, a, a MC, an opener, a middle, and a closer. You know, and then maybe the same thing for the second show or something. You got to fill those with it. So that that brought a lot of mediocrity in the stand-up comedy, but it also 
helped develop a lot of great comedians that are here today. Yeah. And what, what you talk about, we had to come here, period. If you didn't right. make, or, or stay in New York, but usually even the New York comics came out here. You know, we had to come out here because that's where the Tonight Show was. And there was yeah. a stairway to stardom in comedy if you got to the Tonight Show. There was a stairway. Today, there's a comedy club in your hometown or there's six or seven of them in the area that you might develop in and also social media. I mean, yeah. Dane Cook, to his credit, he didn't do like the hit the Tonight Show. He went to, um, what was it? Um, MySpace. MySpace. And, and developed all this following. He was filling 15,000 seat arenas from doing the social media, you know. Absolutely. And the, and the funny thing is, is that I don't think pe enough people learned from that uh, was that you can do that if you have the material to back it up. Yeah. Uh, you can, I mean, I've seen people get like pretty popular on like a TikTok thing or whatever, and then go to do, I, I saw one guy go on AGT and it's fine. You can be funny for three minutes on America's Got Talent and be kind of cute and do whatever. But when you got a headline a show, it's not going to cut it. Amen. And it, I, it's kind of funny to watch. I remember opening for him. Great guy, nice guy. But I remember he was he was on AGT. He got really big um, on there. All the AGT crowd came out, and he had a headline at the end of the show. And he wound up doing twenty minutes, and then the rest of the time just kind of meandering and apologizing for not having, you know, the rest of the time to do it. But the funny thing was, is that crowd was still so forgiving. Like after he would get off, they would still line up to take his picture. And I was like, if I could just get to that level of mediocrity, <laughs> if I could just <laughs> get my, you know, um, I got to ask, cause I could see it sitting on your desk, man. You got an Emmy sitting on your desk. What is that Emmy from? I did a, um, <clears throat> I produced and performed in a, uh, actually in Chicago in a commercial, a PSA, a public service announcement for, uh, the, um, hundred club. It was whenever a, a first, a responder is killed in the line of duty <clears throat> they're killed in the line of duty that they come to your home and they take care of your ch children's college <clears throat> excuse me they pay off your mortgage and and they give you money to help the widow or the widow or you know to survive now the reason what happened was uh, i was out here actually getting a haircut and a guy from new uh, from chicago called me <clears throat> he used to be the head of cbs and the head of uh, nbc at one time I'm sorry, ABC. And he later became president of the 100 Club. And he said, Tom, we're trying to put together a PSA. Can you help me? I said, and he told me about it. I said, I'll call you back in an hour. And this is a true story, Tom. I mm -hmm. called him back in an hour. I said, I got Dennis Farina, God rest his soul. Oh, I got wow. Hans, I got Gary Sinise, I got William Peterson, and I got Joe Montaigne. <clears throat> Excuse me. What a lineup. And we're going to do this PSA for you. And we they, they all came in from different parts of the country. We put it together and it, and it won an Emmy. And wow, uh, I produced it. You know, that's fantastic, man. I love uh, anytime you've on you're on TV or you're doing movies stuff like that is fantastic. I got to ask you a little bit about because uh, I feel like most people don't even uh, realize this, but you were in Spaceballs, which is yeah. one of my all time favorite. I, <laughs> I know you're like, what was it? Did you what was it like working with Mel though? How'd you wind up with that gig? You, you want to hear? I wind up that gig. Show you absolutely. That. All the acting classes I took and all that, here's how I got the gig. Right. I was in a bar. I just got divorced, and I was in a bar with this hot, tall chick. Her name was Trish. She was she was smoking hot. Mm -hmm. And it was our first date. And I took her in, out to Santa Monica. At that time, they had an improvisation in Santa Monica, and I was going to go over and do a set there, and but take her to dinner first. So right. I'm in the bar, and our table wasn't ready, so we went to the bar. Uh, and she, uh, I sat down. She stood up. Mel happened to be in the restaurant and he sees this 
smoking hot chicken. So he walks all the way around the bar. It's, you know, like he's going to the men's room and he sees me. He says, hey, Dreesen, how are you doing? I saw him, Mel. I had met him a couple of times before. <clears throat> I said, hey, Mel, how you doing? He said, I'm fine. I said, this is my friend Trish. This is Mel Brooks. You know, she was thrilled about that, you know. And Mel, he said, hey, Dreesen, what are you doing Monday? I said, what do you want me to do Monday? He said, well, I'm doing a little movie. I said, I'll do it. He said, wait, I didn't even finish it. I don't care. What do, you, what do you want me to do? You want me to sweep the floor? <laughs> what do you want me to do? I want to be around Mel. Mel said, small role. He said, in blah, blah, blah. I said, I'll, I'll do it. He said, it's a, it's a one-day shoot. It turned out to be a two-day shoot where I got killed. You know, the scene. Yeah. And they sprayed shaving cream in my mouth. And the, Right, right. It wasn't shaving cream. It was whipped cream. And the problem was it had set too long. And when they did that to me, it was sour. And when I hit the floor, I'm at the floor. They're, they're still rolling. And I'm on the floor. I'm supposed to be dead, but oh, oh, you know. <laughs> and Mel, when Mel yelled, cut, I bolted out of it. And I'm in, I got my head in the toilet. He said, he said, Dreesen, are you okay? I said, Mel, what the fuck was in that kitchen? Oh, Jesus. You know. So we had oh, to my God. Sure, but. I tell you what, I, I did two nights. I got uh, I, I got uh, four thousand dollars a day. I got eight thousand dollars for doing those two days. Mm -hmm. And this day, now that was what that was almost thirty five years ago. I think wow. I, I on my desk I probably have a check here for eleven cents. Twelve <laughs> baseballs run over and over and over and over. Yeah, yeah, it's a cla it's one of those cult classics, man. It's one of those perfect movies, and I remember you seeing it like vividly. So it's crazy, man. I had to ask. Um, you mentioned Jackie Mason earlier. I saw Jackie Mason. I don't know. I mean, it must have been like in New York, but he told a story about Frank Sinatra trying to assassinate him. And I got to ask you if it's true. He had he, apparently Jackie Mason said that he had pissed off. Um, or he was he had Joey Bishop opening for him, and Frank didn't like that Joey wasn't headlining a room. So, uh, and Frank tried to heckle Jackie, and Jackie said that he went back at Frank. And then later he came back to his hotel room and there was a, a bullet shaped hole in his hotel room glass and in the wall. And, and he, and he, that he thinks Frank tried to have him killed. Do you think that's likely? It's one of the greatest bullshit stories I've ever, <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you why. First, I, by the way, I love Jackie. I thought Jackie was one of the great stand-up comedians of all time. Mm -hmm. You know how you're supposed to do, like you do, you got a subject and you do one or two or three jokes on that subject. Yeah. Because they say you can't belabor it. Jackie could do 23 jokes on on this bottle of water. <laughs> and then when he got done, he had another 20. He was right. a comedian. But <clears throat> I heard this story from Julie Rizzo. Oh, okay. Julie told me what happened was Jackie was doing jokes about when Frank was married to, um, um, oh, geez, why am I blanking? He was married to um, my, uh, uh, Mia Farrell. Mm -hmm. yeah. Frank was like 50 or something. Mia was 21, 19 or 20 or 21. You know, right. Frank married her for a short time. Jackie was doing routines about the old man and the kid. You know, Frank said, not with the kid. And, blah, 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 blah. and it got back to Frank, but he wasn't mad. He said to Julie, Julie, when you see Jackie, ask him not to do that if he doesn't mind not to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, Julie said, this is Julie's story. He said that he saw Jackie and said, Jackie, you know, Frank wants to know if you won't do a bit, you know, he said, about him being married to a young girl. He said, hey, I tell him what songs to sing. I don't tell him what songs to sing. You know, I don't tell him what songs to sing. You know, he tell me what material to do, you know, blah, blah. And right. so Julie did not go back and tell Frank, but he's sitting around with a bunch of his friends. Some of these guys, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they, and one of the guys at the table said, hey, you know, I, this is the way Jilly told me the story. He said, you know, uh, I saw Jackie Mason, you know, he's talking about the old man. They call Frank the old man, not like, not like OLD, aboard mm-hmm. ship, captain of the ship is the OL, the old man. You know, the, okay. the shipper is always the old man. You know? And so he said, he said, I saw he was talking about the old man the other night and uh, about him being married to the young girl. And Jilly said, yeah, and, you know, I told him uh, that Frank asked him not to do it. And but he's continuing to do it, I guess. And the guy said, let me get this straight. You asked him, he said, you asked him not to do it. And he's still doing it. Right. Go. A couple nights later, he, Jackie was sitting in the car and with the window down and the guy broke, broke his jaw, punched him one time and broke his jaw. Now, that's what I, that's the story Jilly told me. Wow. So people say to me, did Frank Sinatra have Jackie Mason beat up? I said, Frank could beat up Jackie Mason. He didn't have to have somebody do it. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the other great story is Shecky Green said, Frank saved my life. He oh, said, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, Shecky Green said, hey, three guys were beating me up. Three or ten guys were beating me up. He said, Frank pulled up on a limo and he rolled the window down. He said, okay, he's had enough. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Frank, that's Shecky's story, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what, what was, is there something that uh, in particular, like, that you miss the most about, I mean, you open for all these guys, you still friends with some of them. You still talk to some of them and you were, you know, incredibly close with Frank. You're, you're still doing stand up, man. You're still out there doing, that's what I love about you, man, is that you're still, you still love the craft. You're still doing stand up. You're still working. Um, but is there something in particular that you miss about that time period? Other than your friend, obviously you miss Frank Sinatra or whatever, but like, do you miss going out with another performer going out with on, on the road with the band? Or do you like doing your, your solo stuff that you're doing now? Well, you know, I, I enjoy, I'm doing a one-man show now called An Evening of Laughter, and um, now I call it The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. I used to call it An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra, but now I call it The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's a 90-minute show where I come out and I do stand-up in theaters for about 25, 30 minutes, and then I segue to a bar, and on stage there's a, a bar, and, and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels, which was Frank's make of choice, and I segue over to the bar and I tell a very funny story at the bar, and it mm-hmm. gets laugh and when it gets a big laugh all the lights go out in the theater and on and on the stage too and on the screen is frank singing i'm at the bar and he's singing to me it's quarter to three there's no one in the place except you and me mm-hmm. so, and i got a little story i think so anyhow when he gets to the course make it one for my baby and one more for the road he goes off screen and the spotlight hits me and now i'm in a bar and i've come home and the audience is in a bar with me and wow. i tell the first time i heard that voice I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar in the south side of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois. And he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Sinatra on the jukebox in Harvey, Illinois, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take them on that journey. Wow. And, and, with, and as I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the story I'm telling or video. So it's, it's a lot of laughs. Mm-hmm. The Tim and Tom years. You know, I go through all that, the first Tonight Show, what it was right. like. In that curtain, I go through all that into Sammy Davis, Smokey, but then I get to Frank, and then I get him, I get him laughing, laughing, and then I get him to the funeral, and I have him in tears, and I turn right around, and I close with a funny monologue and get him laughing again, because you know, I'll tell you this, I've always thought a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour, an hour and a half. A great mm-hmm. comedian can make you laugh and cry, and I only yeah. see two comedians do this. One was Richard Pryor, and the other was Red Skelton. And I thought, wow, I'm going to try that one day because it's, you know, when we get them on a roll, you, you don't want to. How, you know, I saw Richard Pryor take an audience to the ceiling 
And then he took him into a real dramatic area and had him, including me, down here. Right. Oh, my God. He had the tears coming out of their eyes. And then he turned right around and took them all the way back to killing them again. I said, that's one of the bravest things I've ever seen a comedian do. So that's what I do in my one-man show. And I think, you know, so, so in answer to your question, I went a long way. But what I missed was the excitement. You know, I can't describe to you what it was like touring with Frank Sinatra. In the, in the 14, almost 14 years I toured with Frank Sinatra, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in my life. <laughs> because, one, I was playing golf on a celebrity player's tour. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 cities a year. I, I, I caddied when I was a boy. So I was playing, it was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicapped or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. There was 42 Hall of Famers. Show business, it was me, Jack Wagner, Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, Smokey Robinson, Frankie Avalon, Eddie Marinell. I was the only comedian on that tour, so I used to bill myself as the leading money winner among stand-up comedians on the tour because I was the only one, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> they paid us. They paid us to play in these cities and then hanging out with these guys. And at the same time, I was touring with Frank mm -hmm. and, and the, the – that you're going on the, you know, it's time to go on the road. A limousine would pull out in front. Two big guys would come and carry my luggage down to the car. They'd carry me down to the car if I wanted to. <laughs> limo would drive you, I'd drive me right, I live here in Sherman Oaks, and Limo would take me right over to Van Nuys Airport, the private jets, and we'd go right out in the tarmac. I'd get out, they'd load my luggage, I'd walk on the plane. The moment Frank put his foot on that plane, we took up down the runway. Boom. He had a pilot wow. on his spots. He'd say, let's go, spots. And we'd go <laughs> down the runway, and we squad cars and limousines, we'd land squad cars and limousines, rush us to the arena. We'd go on stage, do the show, squad cars and limousines, rush us back to the jet. We were flying over the venue. People weren't even in their cars yet. We were on our way to the next city, doing five or six cities or seven in a row. This, doing that and playing golf. Christopher Morley once said, success is living the life you want. I was, I was on top of the world with that world. You know, I, I just, that's what I miss. I miss that excitement. And, and being around Frank Sinatra, it's hard to describe. He'd walk into a room, John. We'd go to a private function. We'd go to the White House. I performed at the White House so many times, even before I met Frank and after I met Frank. But, um, you know, people wanted to be around him. Yeah. In a room of a thousand people, Frank would go in the room, he'd be off to the side, some function. Before the night's over, that whole room would gravitate to him, to get around to him, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, he, not that he commanded it. Yeah, and not that he, he did not that he demanded it, but he it, it, he was Frank Sinatra. Yeah, arguably the greatest pop singer of all time. But forget about that. Four, one thousand four hundred thirty-one times he went to the studio. He recorded over a hundred albums, over twelve hundred original songs. He won the Academy Award. He danced with Gene Kelly. You know, there, there's never been a career like that. You know, and 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 he was a star. Most people are stars five years, ten years, twenty. That's a big. Truth. 60 years. Yeah. He sold out in Japan when he was 78 years old. What English singing speaker, singer do you know of that sold out in a foreign country? In Brazil, earlier before I ever met him, he sold out 175,000 people came to see him in a huge place. 175,000 wow. people. He's, for a single artist, that's unheard of. So he mm -hmm. was, it was, it's hard to describe being around him, what that was like. Was he was he kind of forthcoming with you? I mean, he told you that you know what he ever told you in that car trip, you know that he kind of said he was you know regretted saying out loud. But was he kind of forthcoming with his with his politics, with his personal opinions, with his opinions of like 
because you know how comedians can be appreciative still of other guys that are coming up after them, like because it's the comedy. Was he um, aware of younger musicians and kind of appreciative of what the music was coming up? Absolutely. And when <clears throat> when I got to know when I first started on tour with him, he was the boss of this tour. Yeah, I didn't know how long it was going to last. <clears throat> you know, and and it, the second night I was with him, he took me out to dinner. He and his wife Barbara. And he said, uh, in the middle of dinner, I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like to do a few other dates. I want you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. Mm -hmm. I didn't let me check my calendar. I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do that. But so he was the boss of the tour. Later, when I started hanging with him, we became like buddies. And toward the end of his life, he was more like a father to me and mm -hmm. opened up to me more. The more he got to know me and trust me, the more he'd open up. There were times when I was in the in, in car with him in the middle of the night. I would, he would come and get me out of my bungalow when I stayed at his compound. He said, Tommy, let's take a ride. And we'd ride around the desert till dawn. There were times when I was alone with him that I, he wasn't Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. He was a kid from Hoboken and I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois. And we talked about that. Two street guys. You know, he once told the New York Times guy, and I'll never forget this, and I still have it. And I, I, it means the world to me. The guy said, how come you keep Tom Vieson with you so long, Frank? He said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, yeah, yeah, besides the fact that he's funny. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And I always treasured that quote. Wow. I thought when I was with him alone, we were just a couple of neighborhood guys. And, and, and uh, I, let me say this too, though, John. He never knew how much in awe of him I was because I never let him see that side. You know, wow. was I like anybody else? Holy shit, this was Frank Sinatra. You know, mm -hmm. he would do something on stage, I'd say, I want to say to him, wow, man, when you, the way you did that house I live in tonight, he'd bring the house down. I'd want to, but I, he had a lot of fans. He had millions of fans. He didn't want another guy gushing over him. So I, right. on that. I don't know how I picked up on that, maybe being a former bartender, I picked up on that, don't be one of those, you know, and so I, I, there were times I want to say, you know, in that movie from here to eternity, man, you really got, <laughs> then, he, then he'd have another slobbering fan by him. You know, I shouldn't say slobbering, but you know. Yeah. yeah. He, he didn't, he wanted a friend. He didn't want another fan. Yeah, absolutely. Was it, uh, when the Rat Pack and those guys would kind of hang out, did you feel like they were all on equal footing? Did one look to the other? Did they more, more so look to Frank? Did Dean kind of do his own thing? Like, cause there's all those stories about Dean, like nobody could tell Dean what to do. Even though you know, did you did you ever get involved in any of that? Like, kind of see that frustration. Well, Frank was the chairman of the board. Make no mm -hmm. mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. That they knew Dean and Sammy had tremendous respect for him. But I played golf with Dean. I did the Dean Martin roast. Uh, I did some gigs with Dean and and got to know him. And, and, and in fact, his family and I are still real close. Uh, nice. His son Craig and, and his and his daughter Gail. I introduced her to her husband. You know. Oh wow. And Dean, you know. But anyhow, I. Frank, Dean, Dean was somebody you didn't fool with. One of the reasons that Frank loved Dean Martin, one was Dean could make you laugh. Dean, he, he could, you could be, spend a day with him. He wouldn't say one word, but at the end of the day, he'd say one sentence and you'd fall off the chair. <laughs> Remind me if, we, if I get past this to tell you how Dean made Frank laugh one time. Remind you, but well, there. Come, go with this. Frank loved Dean Martin because I think Dean was the brother Frank never had. Frank was an only child. And Dean also, Dean was funny and Frank wasn't. Frank couldn't, Frank would try to tell a joke, but he wasn't a funny guy. And I think mm -hmm. he knew that about Dean. 
that Dean was so glib. But the other thing was, Dean was a tough son of a bitch. Dean boxed when he was in, a, in, in grew up in, in right. Winville under the name of Kid Crochet. When it was mm -hmm. his, you know, and he was, you didn't fool with him. Hey, he once, a mob guy reached over his shoulder one night to take a shrimp, Johnny Rosselli from Florida. Dean was eating shrimp. And a mob guy reached over the table to grab a shrimp and Dean slapped his hand. He said, I don't think people fool with my food. I mean, yeah. there's a book by a guy named Romer, R-O-E-M-E-R, -E -E he was head of the FBI. He talks about the wiretaps they had where Sam Giancana was talking to Johnny Rosselli. And Johnny Rosselli told Sam Giancana he wanted to kill Dean. Wow. He said, it's because he has no respect for me. You know, he said, right. he'd like to break his jaw. And I, I said to myself, well, Johnny, you better come with some help. Because Dean was yeah. over. But, and, and Frank knew that. he. I think he respected Dean the most for that. You know, I, I grew up, again, I boxed when I was in the service. I grew up on the streets. There's guys who in bars are ambushers. You know, you have a few arguments with them. They wait till you turn your head and they throw up. Or they ambush you, you know, uh, or something like that. Or they, you know, Frank was more like, he was a scrapper. You know, he might throw a punch at you or something like that. But Dean was a fighter. And wow. Frank had that kind of respect for him. But they, in turn, had the respect for Frank as being the chairman, being the greatest pop singer of all time. Steve Lawrence once said to Frank Sinatra, we were having dinner, and he said, you know, you ruined it for all the rest of us. That's what he said. He said, when they heard you sing it, they knew how it was supposed to be sung. Wow. That's and a great compliment. Now, uh, now, a quick another story here um, about how Frank Dean made Frank, made Frank laugh. At the end of, toward the end of Frank's career, he was using the teleprompters a lot, mm -hmm. you know, because he would forget lyrics. And so now he would do the same 17 songs every night. But he started putting in the teleprompters and he was bringing in new songs, Moonlight in Vermont. And he, even though he didn't need, need them some nights, some nights he could do the song, but just knowing they were there, the lyrics were there, comforted him. Yeah. Dean was forgetting lyrics to songs in Vegas and everything. And Frank was talking to him all the time. They called each other Deg. You know, they, he said, hey, Deg, in, in short for Dego. And, mm -hmm. and I was telling a story in a radio show one time, and a guy said, boy, they couldn't get away with that today. I said, what do you mean? I mean, calling each other Deg. They couldn't get away with that today. I said, I would love to be in a room, and I'd hope it'd be on like the 21st floor. And when you were telling Dean, the person would come and tell Dean and, San, Dean and Frank, you know, you can't call each other Deg. <laughs> open the window, somebody's going out like you know you tell these guys you know they called each other affectionately dig you know yeah yeah so you know so he says uh frank was trying to get dean to do this to get the teleprompters in and and he wasn't doing it and he was forgetting lyrics anyhow we were in detroit frank and i doing the box theater and that mm -hmm. and then we were doing a, a, an evening show and then we were flying out so in between shows, we were in, we were watching football. Frank and I were in the, in the in a suite watching football, and in came Frank's manager, Elliot Weissman, and he said, "I got Mort Biner on the phone." That was Dean Martin's manager. He said, "I got Mort on the phone," and Mort says that Dean used a teleprompter last night in Vegas, and he walked off stage and said, "Book me on a world tour. These things are wonderful." He, wow. said, he said, "Damn it, damn it! I've been telling that." Get him on the phone. I want to. I've been telling him that for what the hell? He gets Dean on the phone, and I'm saying, and he, he said, "Hey, Dave, I've been telling you for years. Those those rock stars, they put that button in their ear. You know the, the lyrics." And he said, "We're not getting any younger." And and I've been telling you, and you're finally. And Dean's listening and listening. He goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he said, mm -hmm. "Where are you at? Where are you guys at?" And Frank said, "Hold on one second. He said, "Tommy, where are we at?" I said, "We're in Detroit." He said, "We're in Detroit." Dean said, "Did you have to look in the fucking teleprompter to find where we're at?" <laughs> 
Uh, the phone on the floor. He said, he got me again. He got me again. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's great, man. Yeah, I think uh, when I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think uh, um, you you don't realize that how funny Dean was. Like when I was a kid, it was always Jerry Lewis for me. Like Jerry Lewis is the funny one or whatever. And then as I got older, you realize how fucking good Dean was and how funny he was and, and just a perfect straight man. But then also when he was by himself, man, could deliver a line, a quip, a note, you know, the physicality of it, everything. Like he was very, very funny. You, you remember the comedy team, Roman and Martin? And oh, yeah. Nick Martin went to his grave saying Dean Martin was the most underrated comedian of all time because everything. Yeah. He said he was funny. You know, I was with a comedy team for six years, as you know, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Jerry Lewis, Dean was a quarterback. Jerry would go all over the place and be yes. funny all of it. And Dean knew when to bring him in, knew when to bring him back here to, you know, it, it was, it was, and, and he, he was brilliant at that, you know, yeah. own, he, he was a funny guy. I mean, you know, he, but again, he wasn't like me, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a talker, talker, talker. Dean was a very sure. guy, but he could also, he could also be very funny. Did you, did you know when Frank was going to do, when he was going to bring Jerry on to, uh, I mean, when he was going to bring Dean on to uh, the telethon? No. You didn't know? That was the biggest surprise of all. And one of the greatest moments in show business, I thought. Yeah. I mean. For, young people today wouldn't understand, but Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, when they got hot, they they could have today they'd fill Dodger Stadium. If today, you mm -hmm. know, you know that they, they in six weeks that happened. Wow. In six weeks at the Skinny's Club, uh, the the uh, five hundred Club, Skinny D'Amato owned it in uh, Atlantic City. You know, and six, they they got people to come there and got there, and and before you know it, they were the hot. In those days. A Catholic and a Jew, you, people thought that was whoa! Oh my God! <laughs> you mean to tell me they're a team? You know, like, like you know. Uh, but it was great, amazing. Um, and, and Jerry, I, I, Dean didn't talk to me about, a lot about that, but Jerry did. Jerry opened up to me a lot because because I was with a comedy team. I I would talk to Jerry a lot about timing and team and all that kind of stuff. After, he never saw Tim and Tom, and I met him after I was Tim and Tom, but I was interested in comedy teams. Mm. And, uh, but Jerry talked a lot about it. He was, Dean's, Dean's side of the story was different than Jerry's, of course. Sure, yeah. And did, did you know, did they, did they actually, you know, uh, communicate, talk more than anything else? You know what I mean? Like, were they, were they really kind of like, um, because I know towards the end, I've had friends who who know Jerry and, and stuff like that. And they've, you know, they talk about their relationship a little bit. Did you, were you around them at the time when they were older, when they were kind of, you know, patching things up? Yeah, not together. They, you know, they, they hardly got together after that night. I think they might have seen each other one other time. One other time in person? I mean, it wasn't, it just wasn't something Dean was, Dean, by the way, was a recluse. I mean, a recluse. He, he stayed. Because of his kids, right? From, yeah, he, he was a, a loner. I would go see him. There was a place called La Familia in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. in, in, not Hollywood, I'm sorry, in Beverly Hills. And um, Dennis Farina and I, uh, Dennis who loved Dean Martin, you know, and, and uh, Dennis Farina would go over there sometimes. La Familia, we'd go over there, have something, and Dean would be in the corner. I'd send a drink over to him. He'd send a drink back, but he wanted to be alone. He wanted to be left alone. But he would comment to me. I'd be up at the bar like in, with Dennis waiting for a table, and Dean would say, hey, Tommy, Tommy. I spent four hours in the shower today. I said, you did? He said, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to turn the water on. You know? <laughs> he 
do stuff like that, you know. That's great, man. Uh, I want to talk to you about your new book. Uh, what was it when you when you started to write this book, man? How was it kind of diving into those memories? Were you were you like, you know, was it hard going back through all of it? Did you enjoy it? Was there any point where you were like, you know, uh, had to kind of stop and collect your thoughts and be like, man, this is heavy stuff? Yeah, you know, because I wanted to tell the truth. It, it, I, you know, also, see, what happened was I had been saving. I got the thing right here. It says stories of my life. Wow. You know, in my words. And that's these were the stories that I journaled night after night, year after year, you know. And I, I had it all done. And I said, thinking, I want to write something for my grandchildren that one day their children are going to say, what was your grandpa like? And I wanted to leave a book. So I so that was part of it. And, and then two guys called me, Darren Grubb and Johnny Russo, called me and they said, you know, they got a hold of my number and they said, Mr. Dreesen, we would like to write a book about you. We think it would be interesting. And I said, guys, I've already written the book, uh, but I could sure use you for the narrative and, and, and help me, you know, but, and, and they were brilliant at it. So I would mm -hmm. send them chapters and then they would come back and they'd say, okay, we're going to take this sentence out and put it in chapter four because it'll help, you know, blah, 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 you know. About right. It. And, 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 uh, but in, when I got the book, when it was finally done and I got the first manuscript, I read it, it was really, uh, interesting to go down memory lane and, and think, of it. you know, it's almost sometimes like Frank Sinatra's lyric to think I did all that, you know, I, I, I forgot, not forgot, but, I ran 26 miles three years in a row for multiple sclerosis. You know, wow. I, you know, I, I, you know, when I found out that my real father was Frank Polizzi, my mother's brother-in-law, that that's how I was Italian. You know, when I when I confronted him, and I wow. in the book, that was a moment that 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 I had to relive. Uh, then on his deathbed, I promised him because he had a band at one time called Frank Polizzi and the Venetian Ears, where my, and in fact my mom sang in a band sometimes that. He, he was like in show business on a small scale, <clears throat> but he loved entertainers. And I, and I told him on his deathbed that one day I would, I would receive an award and I would accept it in his name. Mm -hmm. And so I received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor Award. And I, that's where he came from Italy on Ellis Island when he was wow. seven years old. And I accepted it in his name. You know, I had to relive all those things and, and, the, and the pain of these things and, uh, and, and the joys, you know, so yeah, it was, it was, um, and then when you, you look at it and say, I wish I would have put this in, I wish I would have put mm -hmm. that in, you know. Uh, yeah. That's the hard thing is going back through it and going, oh, man, I left it. But, but you know what? Then there's the paperback. So you slip those stories into the paperback edition. No one knows the difference. And that's it. You call it a bonus. You hike up the price. Yeah. The paperback's already out and I haven't done that. But, you know, or, I mean, there's always, a, you know, a part two. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I don't know if I ever want to go that. But it, but it was, it was, yeah, it's, it's a, inside every stand-up comedian, there's, there's a one-man show and there's a book. And I tell stand-up comics this all the time. You can work comedy clubs till the cows come home and you're going to probably make rent, make rent money uh, and, and you may or may not uh, survive a lot. But theaters are all over the United States. And I mean state-of-the-art theaters. Right. You know, performed in a high school in Frankfurt, Illinois that had 870 seats. State-of-the-art, like on Broadway, it had 810 seats, but... In the 870, and it was, it was, you know, the community went to that theater. Mm -hmm. There are theaters all over the country, you know, that five or six in Kansas City, you know, where you you don't have waiters and waitresses roaming, you know, they get their drinks before they come and they sit down and they're right there in the palm of your hand. Yeah, and a story to tell, 
how you got in the show. Your mom and dad are different, but you know, there's never been anybody like you, John. And this, mm-hmm. no one had your same parents. No one had, you're like the snowflake. There's no one, none, none two snowflakes alike. So yeah. every time you go on stage, you're going to tell a story that they couldn't possibly tell. So, and you can turn that into a journey. You know, what you do your stand up, but then you take them on this journey, how you came to this moment and what was the highlights, some of the low light, you know. Anyway. It's a great point, man. I mean, I never thoroughly thought of it that way. And I know somebody, one of my friends is watching and I know he's working on a one man show too. And I'm ready. He took that to heart. So that's, uh, that's great to hear. Well, tell him that if he wants to call me anytime, you'll have my number. Bill has my number. I'll be glad to. I absolutely will. That's great, man. Thank you. Um, and I, I want to, th- I mean, I've, thanks for staying as long as you have, man. I kept you in a half an hour longer than I said I was going to. So I appreciate that. I got to ask you the big three questions that we ask every guest that's been on the show. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. First question is if you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? It would be, I hope that you would have been a better father than what you were. I mean, I love my children and my children love me and, and they'll tell you I'm a great guy, but this career, that I chose this career of stand-up comedy. It took me away from them time after time after time. You wow. miss birthdays and you miss graduations because you're trying to get the rent money. You're trying mm-hmm. to, and, and, and your justification for that is, oh, well, if I make it, I can do things for them that I didn't have as a child. But the truth is it's a very selfish endeavor. It's a very selfish endeavor. You're chasing your dream and you drag them along with you. I, I, I would have... I, I I, I'd have been a better father. And, wow. and, and I and today, and my kids say things about me, but I, I know in my heart, and every comedian out there knows that we chased the dream and we drug them along with us. And, and that has some consequences. That I, you know, I feel I, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because uh, I know I, yeah, I hope you believe your kids when they tell you that if they, you know, how, all the nice things they say about you and, uh, and that, you know, they had a good childhood or a good life because, you know, m- you know, my mom's not a performer, but my mom feels I know she feels the same way because, you know, I had a my dad wasn't the greatest guy and there was some stuff. But I know that every now and again, when we do talk about stuff, she'll say, you know, she regrets things and that she'll, she'll talk about my child or whatever. And I always say the same thing. I always say, I only remember the good times. I only, you know, I, I appreciate this, this, and this, and I love you, and yada, yada. So I hope you do believe your kids, because I hope my mom believes me when I say the same thing. So I hope you do take it to heart and don't be too, you know, hard on yourself either. Well, you know, as as most of us are, I'm, I'm my worst critic, you know, and, and yeah, I, you know, I don't need to read what the critics think of me. <laughs> Absolutely. How you become better is when you accept those constructive criticism will never hurt you in show business. Absolutely. If you don't know, you can't grow. Absolutely, man. Completely agree. What's number? Uh, so number two is um, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you exactly to where you are today? Drinking. Oh, wow. Okay. No doubt about it. I love beer. I never drank anything but beer. I love hanging out with the guys, drinking, going to ball games. I drink. You know, I love drinking beer. And, and I think about it even to this day. But I know that my, my father was a beer alcoholic and so was my mom at one time. And that's all they drink was beer. But I know that that would have, I would not been able to go on stages in front of 20,000 people or 40, right. like I said, with, with, in Hawaii, with a hangover. I know I couldn't have written the material that I had to write with a hangover. I couldn't yeah. have been you know, catching planes, you know, doing shows at two o'clock in the morning, catching a six o'clock flight, you know what I'm saying? Uh, with yeah. 
hangovers. You know, it was bad enough without hangovers. You know, but uh, right, yeah, right. No doubt in my mind, drinking had, had to stop. Nice. Did you did you? It's so crazy because a lot of performers, I have a lot of bands, musicians, and stuff like that, and comedians, obviously, on the show, and that's a common theme among all of us. Did you link it to creativity ever? Did you feel like if you stopped, maybe you wouldn't have been as loose or funny or creative? No, not at all. When That's great. George Carlin told me that he smoked dope for seven years. And he said, I thought I was being very creative. He said, when I quit smoking grass and I look back over my life, I go, holy shit, I wrote that crap. You know, the interesting thing in the comedy store days, when I was starting out, there was maybe a hundred comedians there. And cocaine was the big thing. Quaaludes and cocaine. You know, there were three comics who weren't doing drugs. David Letterman, Jay Leno, and me. <laughs> and we're all still here. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, and the last question has to do with the show. It ties in with the dystopia theme. If this was the last day on Earth for everybody, and it was a true dystopia, either aliens or zombies or a comet heading toward Earth or climate change hits, how would you spend your last day? How would you want to go out? I would want all my children, my grandchildren around me. I'd want, I'd want to calm them and comfort them and tell them we're going to a better place and I'm going with you. You know, nice. That's that's what I, I, I you know, and I and I tell them that now when when I go, don't don't fear death because I'll be waiting on the other side for you. You know that light at the end of the tunnel? It'll be me saying, "Come on, it's your time," or it's not your time. One or the other. Beautiful. I have, an, I have an additional question to that that one. What would be the what would be the last joke you think you would tell? Do you have one of your favorites? Yeah. <laughs> I saw that look. I have eighteen thousand jokes in my brain, but when you said that, I was going to come up with some like, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, why did the chicken cross the street? <laughs> or like the dirtiest joke imaginable that you shouldn't be telling at the last moment. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I've I've done a stag. You know. I've got to tell you a funny Sam Kinderson story. Sam, and I, three weeks before he died, he was getting on a plane, <clears throat> and uh, American Airlines, as I was too, and we saw each other as we were boarding, and we were going, and he said, hey, Tom, you know what? He said, you're from Illinois, and I'm from Illinois. He said, you're a comedian, and I'm a comedian. He said, but Tom, you got this terrible reputation of being a clean comedian, and it's ruining your fucking career. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I said, I said, oh, you got you got it, Sam. So, but my point is, I could do a stag roast with the best of them. Yeah. I can do a stag roast. I'm a street guy. But right. in my day, you couldn't make money. We were in show business, show and business. Right. And how do you get how do you how do you make it? You had to get on a tonight show. How do you get on a tonight show? You had the right material that can make grandma and grandpa, mom and the kids laugh. Yeah. So it was a business move. But I could right. and I'll, I'll tell you one other quick story. I'm at the Laugh Factory a while back. And I was getting ready to travel some new material, and there were two comedians off to the left, and I couldn't see them, and they couldn't see me. And mm -hmm. I was my notes, and one of them said, "You know, Tom Dreesen's here," and I, and I, you know, heard my name, my ears perked up, and and, I, and and one of the other comedians said, "Yeah, you know, he's old school," and the other comedian said, "What do you mean he's old school?" He said, "Well, he doesn't use the f word," and the other comedian said, "He doesn't use the f word. What does he use for adjectives?" <laughs> I stuck my head around the corner and I said, "Adjectives." <laughs> That's great. I got. What do you think? I, I, now I got. Now I got to ask you one more question. What do you think of the comedy documentaries? Are you watching that kind of stuff? Because you knew all these guys. I was just at the premiere of the Carlin documentary uh, that Judd Apatow did last night. 
Um, but there's like that one, Gary Shandling's documentary that Judd did that one too. And Robin Williams documentary that came out, I think like six months ago or something like that. Yeah. What do you, do you, do you watch those? Cause you knew all those guys. Like, do you, I, I do. And, and, and by the way, they're doing a documentary on my life from this. I know. And that's another thing too. How involved, like, do you, like when they're doing, like they're doing the one on your life, are you involved every step of the way or do you have to let go of the reins? No, I, I, by the way, that's part of the deal that I wanted to be involved. Cause I don't like even my book, I don't want anybody ever to come up to me and said, you know, I read in your book and I'd say, I didn't say that. Right. No, bullshit. I said it. So I wanted to make sure every line in that book, I'll stand by everything I said. Some things I said in that book are, are, are painful and some things, but I, that's the way it happened. Yeah. You know? But in the same way with a documentary, you know, I, I don't want you to sugarcoat me either. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, sure. I mean, I'm, 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 God, God knows, man. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've done some bad things in my life and I've, I've I've learned from them. You know, I, 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 it's been a struggle my whole life. And, and, you know, it's like the first half of my life is God said, I'm going to put a load on you. But if you survive, the second half is on me. And the second right. half is on him. I've, I've had a great second half. Nice, man. Are you, are you like, um, when they're doing that stuff, you know, for the documentary, are you in control of all of your media, all the rights to the, the footage so and stuff far, like that? So far, I, 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 I've given them, all, they, they, they'll be, you know, because I did like 50 David Letterman shows. I hosted yeah. There's, you know, the Tonight Show's. They're going to have to get clearance, you know, on some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I've also everything I have, I've given to them, and we get together all the time and talk about, you know, uh, you know, you know, I, 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 the way I would do, you know, I, I, and I'm not making this up, John. If I close my eyes, no matter where I was, performing at the White House, performing with Frank Sinatra, performing all over the world, the Tonight Show's, the Letterman Show. No matter where I'm at, no matter this, this, where I've gotten to a place, a big place in comedy, if I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shoe shine box trudging through the snow, mm -hmm. going to tavern to tavern, trying to get enough money to feed his brothers and sisters. I'm that little boy. I, that little boy stayed with me and is with me my whole life. You know, there were times I had to tell that little boy, okay, I got to do an adult job now. I got to. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a great book called Healing the Child Within that I read years ago. Two women wrote it. It's really good. But anyhow, uh, but that, I'm not far from that little boy. You know, that's who I am. I'm a neighborhood guy, and that's what I want the documentary to be. I remember I wrote a movie years ago called Seven Come Eleven, and, and it it didn't happen. But it was about six guys from the neighborhood, seven guys actually from the neighborhood, who all had dreams. They were playing the major leagues. They were going to do this. They they all had dreams. They grew up together. Went to first grade together. And all these seven guys had dreams. And one day they realized my dream is never going to come true. Every one of them had a different dream. Wow. In fact, not only am I never going to play in the big league, never going to own my own company or my, my whatever, I'm not even going to be able to leave this neighborhood. And I want this documentary about the one guy I left that neighborhood. Yeah. It's I a great title for the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful man, thank you so much for coming on. Hang backstage just two seconds. I'm gonna wrap up and and uh, and then I'll I'll see you backstage. Okay, buddy. Thanks, man. Appreciate you coming on. Really do. We enjoyed this, and I hope we work together somewhere down the line. I hope we do too, man. That would be a, a phenomenal. Anytime you want me anywhere, I will I will be there, and I'll dress nicely. <laughs> I like the way you're dressed now. Thank you. Dystopia tonight.